Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP, Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Fall 2020 is seeing continued global spread of COVID-19, with uncertainties about increased transmission to vulnerable populations and prospects for dual COVID-19 and influenza outbreaks. At the same time, vaccine trials are heading into the next testing phases, and public health agencies are preparing vaccine distribution plans. And finally, also this year, because of the pandemic, Thanksgiving will not be the same. My guest today is Natalie Tallis, Population Health Manager with the Alexandria, Virginia Health Department. Natalie will provide an update on the COVID-19 pandemic and how health departments are working to limit the number of new cases in our communities. She's also going to talk about plans for distribution of the vaccine once it's available. And finally, she will give us recommendations for how families can stay safe this Thanksgiving. So welcome, Natalie, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Natalie, I think we need to kind of go back to the basics. I know lots of people understand a lot of these things, but I think it's really helpful because people have learned a lot about COVID-19 in the last, say, nine months. So help us again, just to to get started, what are COVID-19 symptoms? And more importantly, or as importantly, do all people have the same symptoms? And, and, and what are the factors that influence the disease severity? Sure. So one of the tricky things that has been about COVID over the past few months, and as we're learning more about it, is that we're really seeing that there can be very different symptoms based on person to person. So different people could have different symptoms based on you know, their age or if they have underlying health conditions or what else is going on in their lives. But some of the most common symptoms of COVID-19 are fever, cough, headaches, muscle aches, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, loss of taste and smell, sore throat, and runny nose. So it's, it's a lot of different symptoms Um, And some people might have just a few of those, whereas others might have the whole gamut. So it can really depend person to person. So what you just described in terms of these symptoms, wow, that also sounds a lot like the ordinary flu that we worry about each year. So explain to us what are the similarities between COVID-19 and the flu? And as importantly, again, what are the differences? Yeah, so that is definitely a concern of ours going into flu season right now 
is that there are so many similar symptoms between the two viruses. And really most of those symptoms that I listed for COVID-19 do apply to influenza as well. Really the thing that sticks out the most as the biggest difference between the two are that loss of taste and smell, which is really more uniquely for COVID-19. And so of course, because there are so many similar symptoms, we're really encouraging people this year of all years to please, please get their flu shots because it is actually also possible for you to have both the flu and COVID-19 at the same time, which sounds like a miserable experience. And so, you know, because there are those steps available to at least limit your chances of getting the flu, we really hope people will take advantage of the flu shot this year. And Natalie, are you hearing or finding that in terms of the the flu shot, that maybe people are still a little nervous? Gee, I don't want to go to the drugstore. Or could you talk a little tiny bit about maybe better places to get the flu shot just so they would still feel safe and not be exposed, say, to COVID? What would you tell our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, a lot of places that flu shots are available, which could include, you know, drugstores and grocery stores, um, you know, any place that has a pharmacist will usually provide flu shots. And then, of course, your, your normal primary care doctors, as well as any urgent cares, will likely have that available. And all these places that are offering the flu shot are really taking a lot of severe precautions. So they are very serious about using the right kind of personal protective equipment. They will encourage you to have your mask on and have all the right things in place as well so that you're being safe. Um, And now that we're having all of the available masks and protective gear available to providers, it is definitely safe to go get that important routine care. We know we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people were putting off things like routine screenings, um, all that sort of basic medical care, but we really urge people to take care of that and not wait too long for that important maintenance. And um, I also want to add too, for your listeners that are over 65, that there is a senior dose of the flu shot and that many providers in the city and in the county surrounding us also have the senior dose and to call and see if they have that available when they're getting their flu shot. You know, we've seen that seniors have a sometimes a weekend immune system. And so the senior dose is really just a more potent version of the flu shot to trigger that immune response and help build up those antibodies to fight the flu when it is around. Good information. Go get your flu shot. Well, let's let's get back uh, to talk a little bit more about COVID-19. What are the sources where the COVID-19 virus is being transmitted. We've heard about this in the past, but as a change, there's about the same. Um, Explain that to us. Absolutely. So at the Alexandria Health Department, we have been doing some additional research about where are some common sources that COVID is being transmitted. You know, where are people being exposed to the virus? And as part of our normal work, following up with people who are positive with COVID, we ask about where they've been in the past 14 days prior to getting symptoms or feeling sick or getting tested. 
And when we analyzed this data, we found that within about a month span, we interviewed about 428 people in the month where this data applies. And of the people that we talked to, about 44% of them actually had someone within their own household who had COVID. So it's looking pretty likely that they got it from someone within their immediate household. We also found that about 25% of the people who were positive had gone to their workplace, an on-site workplace in that last two weeks. We also found that about 10% of the people who were positive had been a part of some sort of social gathering. So, um, you know, this could be a public event that they went to or a party or some sort of other social gathering. And of that group of people who were part of those social gatherings, most of them were inside versus outside. Um, we also found that there were a, you know, a significant amount of people, um, about 7% of people um, who had traveled outside of the DC region and about 7% of people who had also dined at a restaurant or gone out to a bar. And again, the majority of those folks were actually doing indoor dining versus outdoor dining. So, you know, we're looking at all this data about these sources where people might have been exposed and there are steps that people can take to lower the risk of these instances. So, you know, if you have someone who is positive with COVID in your household, that doesn't guarantee that you're also gonna get it. You just have to set in place certain precautions, you know, separating people, if they can have their own bedroom and bathroom separate from others, that is always a great practice. You know, having them wear a mask when they're around others, staying six feet apart, all those basic preventive measures that really do make a difference that we would encourage people to do. And then again, kind of looking at this data as well and thinking about the folks that are inside, gathered together, possibly not wearing their masks, um, things like that. Those are really concerning for us. And, you know, I think part of the, the governor's new executive orders that he just put in place this weekend partially addressed that, that gathering issue. And if a person has COVID, and we're going to talk a little bit more about testing a little bit later, but mm -hmm. how long is that person uh, contagious with, with COVID-19? Yeah, so we typically say that, you know, before someone can, can be around others again, is that a few criteria should be met. And it's mostly based on time. And so really we're looking at if the person has had a fever, which again, not all people have fevers when they have COVID, but if they did have a fever, they need to be at least 24 hours without having a fever, but without using any kind of you know, medicines or anything to artificially reduce the fever. So no medicine and no fever for 24 hours plus it has to have been at least 10 days since their symptoms began and that they're seeing improvement in their symptoms. So it's really important to think about this as a kind of time and symptom-based strategy for when you can be around others again. You know, some people think that, well, maybe I should just get tested again and see if I get negative and then I can be around others. But, you know, there's all sorts of challenges with that. Um, so we really advocate for that time and symptom-based strategy. And are you finding also, Natalie, that that in terms of risk factors, 
that there are some that are more likely to get um, COVID than others. What exactly are COVID-19 risk factors and and who is more likely to get serious illness with uh, with COVID? Sure. So I think one of the important things to, to remember about COVID is that it absolutely does not discriminate, right? It does not care about geographic borders. It doesn't care about uh, gender, race, or ethnicity. COVID is looking for, for anyone to be a, a host. Um, but I think when it comes to who is more likely to be potentially exposed to COVID, I think you're looking at folks who maybe can't have remote workplaces, you know, and are still going into their work site because their, their certain job role just doesn't allow for being able to stay home as much as possible. You know, also looking at places where you might be in overcrowded housing. So if you live in a situation where it's a lot harder to stay apart from others, you know, where having your own separate bathroom and, and bedroom is, is not really feasible. So that is also a concern for being at higher risk for exposure to the virus. Um, but then when it comes to what happens when you're actually exposed, when you actually get COVID, um, those who are at higher risk for severe illness are, are really those folks who have those underlying health conditions. And that could be things like diabetes, asthma, heart disease, um, kidney issues, all sorts of underlying conditions that people might have. We've also seen recently there's additional data that obesity is a big underlying health condition issue that might increase the severity of COVID if you get it. Um, we're also you know, concerned about people who, who are pregnant and really making sure that they are not being exposed to COVID in case there are those risks around that. And those who are over 65, we have seen that there are more severe cases of illness for those who are older. Let's talk a little bit about treatment. Over the past nine months, of course, you've heard about so many treatments. Some, they were kind of laughed about and not worthwhile um, or not effective, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Help us on this about how is COVID-19 virus treated? We used to also hear more about people being in ventilators. Yeah. What determines the treatment plan and has it changed since the pandemic started? Yeah. So, you know, I think this really is kind of determined based on a case-by-case -case basis and what's going on with a particular person. And so in many cases, a lot of the care is very supportive. And so treating the symptoms, making it a little bit more comfortable for people as their immune systems battle the virus. And unfortunately, sometimes that could also lead to, you know, ventilators and additional intubation and support for, for breathing for people. Um, and that is really, if you are at the more severe cases of illness phase of COVID. And, and kind of what we're seeing right now with the data is that about one out of every 13 people who have COVID in our community in Alexandria um, actually do have to be hospitalized for the illness. 
Um, and there are some more experimental treatments for COVID. And at this point, you know, people could enroll in, in clinical trials for these treatments. But predominantly, a lot of it is really, you know, supportive and trying to manage some of the symptoms. And for those who are, are not having the severe illness where they have to go to the hospital, you know, a lot of folks are managing their symptoms with over-the-counter medicines. Well, and interestingly, a quick tidbit, my sister, who is 83 years old, uh, did have COVID and ended up in the hospital, and her major symptom was low oxygen levels. Mm. So her treatment pretty much was, you know, getting oxygen treatment more than anything else. So it sometimes it varies with age as well as as symptoms. So you're absolutely right in terms of treating the symptoms sometimes rather than the cause while your body fights it. So. I wanted to get into some of the requirements now. First of all, uh, you mentioned about Virginia's requirements a little bit earlier. Help us on this. Is there still a requirement uh, in this Commonwealth of Virginia about wearing a mask covering in, in public? Why is the proper use of face covering so important? Seems to be so controversial. Yeah. So um, from from our perspective at the at the health department, you know, we do not see this as a controversial issue because really we are are following the science and the science evolves over time, you know, to the fact where at the beginning of the pandemic, there wasn't a lot of evidence that, you know, mask wearing could, you know, help reduce the spread of COVID. But now there's been a tremendous amount of new research, new evidence, and the data is really clear that mask wearing is helping both the people who are wearing the mask protect themselves, but also protecting the people around them and keeping them from being infected too. And in fact, it is actually so important that Virginia recently expanded their mask requirements in public. So just recently, um, Governor Northam expanded the existing mask requirement where previously it applied to all Virginians age 10 and over in you know most public indoor places and now they've expanded the executive order to actually be for everyone age five and over. So now you know having um, more younger kids wearing masks and really just emphasizing the point that this is a really crucial strategy for people. And um, to that effect, too, the executive order mostly applied just to indoor settings with, you know, some exemptions for when you're actively eating or drinking. But the city of Alexandria actually went a step further and added on an additional local mask wearing ordinance that expanded that to outdoor public spaces where it would be difficult for you to be at least six feet away from others. So that would include things like crowded sidewalks, um, you know, farmers markets areas where you really can't have that physical distancing. So just expanding that mask requirement because we've seen the evidence and that it does work. And in fact, there's more research about um, both localities as well as states that have implemented mask mandates. And those areas have fewer COVID cases than areas that do not have similar mask mandates. So, so the evidence is really clear. And at this point, you know, we really just wanna get out the message that yes, mask wearing is important, 
But you also have to wear your mask properly, right? You have to wear it over both your nose and your mouth. We've seen all sorts of things where people are just covering their mouth or they're just covering their nose or they're hanging their mask kind of over their ears. Um, and so having the mask with you is an important first step. And then the next step is just making sure you're wearing it properly as well as you know, caring for it properly. So making sure that you're washing it at the end of the day, that you have a few different masks that you can rotate if you're leaving the house every day. So that way you're not just wearing the same dirty mask all week, um, but really being able to wash it as well as not touching the front of the mask, because that's really where um, a lot of nasty stuff can accumulate on the front. So just being cautious about that and, and making sure kind of people are aware of those mask best practices. Okay. Well, one other question that is equally as important while we're enduring this time is the vaccine. We've talked about so often, as soon as the vaccine comes, life will get back to normal. So before you talk about that, help us on this. What is the actual distribution plan in Virginia for the vaccine when when it arrives and 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 by the way when are vaccines expected what what are you hearing yeah so that's kind of the million dollar question um, about when we will know for sure which vaccine candidates will be moving forward to that next phase and are fully approved by the FDA and we can start using them. And there are multiple candidates right now that have had some really promising uh, safety data from their clinical trials and really being able to show some really excellent numbers also in terms of effectiveness. And just kind of for comparison, you know, right now what we're seeing about some of the current vaccine candidates is looking at you know, 90, 95% effectiveness with this vaccine. And then you compare that with our annual flu shot, which is probably closer to about 40% effectiveness. So it is really showing some initial fantastic numbers for that, as well as the safety. You know, There have been really very mild side effects so far from the safety data. But again, we look at all of that really, really closely and making sure that everything is safe before we start distributing it to our communities. And you know that could be any time within the next month or few months. And at first, it'll likely be that there'll be a very limited amount of vaccine available. Um, so a lot of the distribution plan is really going to be very dependent on how much vaccine is available at first. And really thinking about, you know, if we only have so much vaccine available, thinking about, well, how do we get it to the people who are at highest risk first, which, you know, could be um, our first responders, our healthcare workers, people with a lot of underlying medical conditions, those people that we really want to make sure they are covered first with the limited amount of vaccine that might be available first. And, you know, there could be wider scale vaccine distribution once that's available. Um, and it could look very similar to things that we've done in the past with flu clinics where we've had either walk up or drive up events where, you know, people, they don't need to register, but they just come in and, you know, we're able to vaccinate them. And the one challenge though with the COVID vaccine that is a little different from say the flu shot is that is looking like um, it might be a two-shot dose, 
which is not super uncommon in the world of vaccines. You know, many um, childhood immunizations, such as for chickenpox or other um, childhood issues, are multiple dose shots. Um, and so that would be probably 21 or 28 days in between the first shot. So making sure we have a distribution plan set up to be able to handle all of these logistics and infrastructure is certainly a challenge and is keeping us very busy at the local health department level. And while we'll be able to give out some of the immediate doses, you know, we'll really be partnering with the private sector and private providers, as well as pharmacies and others to help immunize the larger population. And I think the other million dollar question would be, after the vaccine is available and assuming that there's lots of people, and that's an assumption too, receive it, will we all be able to return to our pre-COVID-19 lives? Well, you know, really the, the thing that we say very often in public health is that it depends. So there are still so many unknowns right now at this point, um, you know, with the vaccine candidates, with, you know, how many people will get the vaccine, all of that information is still so unknown. And to the point that certainly within the first few months of having a vaccine, it doesn't mean that you get your your COVID vaccine and then you can just stop wearing a mask or you can you know, have really big crowded gatherings at your house with lots of people who don't live there. We're really gonna have to follow many of the same precautions that we've been using over the last eight months or so until we have more data about you know, how long does the vaccine effects last for in terms of you know, is this protection for a year? Is this protection for multiple years? Um, there's still a lot to know about it, but we certainly know that in the meantime, before we have all of the answers, people do still have to keep doing those physical distancing practices, being cautious and just sticking with it for now because vaccines are really just one part of that larger strategy that we're all in right now of trying to prevent as many illnesses as possible. Okay, well, good time to take a break. We are talking with Natalie Tallis, who is the Population Health Manager with the Alexandria, Virginia Health Department, and you're listening to WERALP Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Natalie Tallis, Population Health Manager with the Alexandria, Virginia Health Department. And we got some basic good information about COVID, but I think that I'd like to move into a new part about the actual acquisition of symptoms or getting exposed. So Natalie, help us here. What should a person do if he or she 
has COVID symptoms, the COVID-19 symptoms, the ones that you you uh, talked about earlier? Because people, I think, sometimes don't know whether to stay home or what should they do? Sure. So absolutely. The first thing to do is to stay away from others. So if you are at work and you're starting to feel bad, you know, head home, tell your supervisor you need to go home, you know, try to stay away from others in your household. And then, you know, we have a lot of resources that are available on our website, which is alexandriava.gov slash coronavirus. And we actually have a whole page about get tested and, you know, what steps to follow. And the first thing is that if you have a regular primary care doctor, the first thing would be to call them and to get their advice to see if you need to be evaluated, if you need to be screened, you know, if it's something else, um, or if you need to get tested. And they will give you guidance about, you know, do you need to come in is there a telehealth visit that you need, or can you just be sent to get tested right away? And do you think that if, if say, somebody doesn't have a primary care physician or they're concerned because they don't have any health insurance, what would you tell them to do? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a number of different resources in our community, regardless of whether you have a primary care doctor or even health insurance. So again, on that website that I mentioned, the alexandriava.gov slash coronavirus, there is a whole list of health facilities that are in the region, actually, for people who just, you know, they need to get tested. So often it is a lot of our urgent cares locally will provide COVID testing. Um, many CVSs in the region will do that kind of drive-through testing or other sorts of testing. Um, and then there's also a few different facilities um, such as the organization Neighborhood Health, um, as well as um, ANOVA has a specific CARES clinic for people who are either uninsured or underinsured. So that way people still can get tested as well as treated even if they don't have the means or they have health insurance. So we really don't want people to let that stop them. Also in the city of Alexandria, we are hosting um, at least weekly, sometimes a few times a week, free COVID testing events in our community. And I believe many other jurisdictions around the region are also doing this because it's really important that if people have symptoms or they've been exposed, that they do get tested. So we're trying to remove as many barriers as possible for people. And I think that folks who live in the Arlington area, they too can look on the Arlington Health Department website for the proper resources. And I also know there's a Preston's Pharmacy, which is right on Lee Highway that does testing and this kind of thing. So there's resources here that, that they, can, they can look to to figure out what next steps they should take. And to that point, Natalie, who should be tested for COVID-19? Uh, it's always a little difficult to understand, well, shall I go or shall I not go? Shall I stay home? Um, help us on that. What would you tell the people? Yeah, so I would encourage people who, you know, have some of those symptoms that I mentioned earlier, um, or if, you know, they've been in close contact with someone who has COVID. And what I mean by close contact is, were you within six feet of a person for at least 15 minutes 
cumulatively over 24 hours. So that, that part is a little tricky that 15 minutes cumulatively over 24 hours. And what that means is say that you were interacting with a person maybe at your workplace and for little bits of time, um, so not 15 minutes all at once, but maybe I spent five minutes with them at 10 a.m. and I spent another five minutes with them at 2 p.m. and then I spent 10 minutes with them at 4 p.m. And then I find out that that person um, has COVID and I realize, well, I was within six feet of that person. So that might mean that I was a close contact of them and I have been exposed. So, you know, that's kind of what we mean by that close contact and that exposure. And that can really be tricky to know, you know, what is six feet and all that. But we also know that you're still considered a close contact, even if you're wearing masks. So now everyone is wearing masks all the time. But even if you were wearing those masks, if you were six feet together, then that still counts as a close contact. And would that mean to be in close contact with somebody, whether or not that the other person had COVID? I mean, I guess my next question would be if a person was in close contact with someone who tested positive for COVID-19, is that any different than just being in close contact with somebody else who may or may not have COVID because they don't know? Yeah. So typically, you know, we're, we're encouraging you to think about that close contact if that person is positive for COVID. Um, and if you happen to be someone who was in close contact with someone, um, it's possible that we have already called you from the health department to let you know, um, because part of our work, um, part of our basic work with responding to COVID is reaching out to those close contacts and letting them know that potentially they might have been exposed to someone who is positive. And, you know, we don't share names, we don't break confidentiality, but we will let you know if, hey, you may have been exposed and we recommend that you get tested around this date. And we try to give you a rough date about when you should go and get tested because Oftentimes people think, oh, I've been exposed to someone who's positive or, you know, I was traveling and may have been exposed and they want to get tested the next day. But COVID actually has an incubation period of about two to 14 days. So, you know, getting tested the very next day after you were exposed, you may not have anything show up right away. So we encourage people who might have been exposed with either a close contact or another situation to get tested around the seven to 10 day mark and really just maintain vigilance about, am I developing any symptoms? Am I feeling okay to monitor their own health and try to stay away from others, but to not get tested the next day and, and give it some time to make sure that you're really getting the most accurate test result possible. And explain this to us, Natalie, is a doctor's order needed to be tested? Yeah, so it, again, it, it kind of depends. So earlier on, you know, in the pandemic, doctor's orders were definitely needed to be tested because testing was, was less available. Um, and so people needed to be evaluated, they needed to rule out all sorts of other health conditions. Um, but now, 
testing is much more widely available and really encouraged for people to, to take advantage of that. And so it depends on where you're going um, to get tested, but Many times, say if you're going to an urgent care or some other facility like that, they'll do a quick screen with you on the phone. So they'll talk to you over the phone and they'll ask you what symptoms you're experiencing or what's going on. Um, and then they'll be able to test you based on that conversation. So you can kind of do everything all at once. And again, when we have our free community testing events that we offer within the city, um, you do not need any sort of doctor's order for those events. You just show up and you get tested. And it's, um, you know, not about whether you have symptoms or anything. It's really just an opportunity for, for anyone who needs it to be tested. And you were explaining before about the various resources. You said urgent care. You said doctor's offices. You said uh, pharmacy, CVS, and, and, and different places. So um, I didn't know if, did you want to explain those again? Because I, otherwise I wanted to go to the next question because there's so many diverse places in our community where a person can get tested. Let's assume that they test positive. What, what are the next steps if a person te gets tested? And incorporated into that, Natalie, is how long does it take before people get results? Sometimes you're hearing oh, I found out the next day, sometimes it's a week. So kind of those two things, what happens if a person tests positive? What, how long does it take to get those results? Then what happens if they get tested positive? And what are the next steps? Yeah, so result times can really vary depending on kind of the demand for testing. So we were experiencing, you know, just I think even as recently as a few weeks ago, um, where test results would, would come back between two and five days, which is, which is pretty good. Um, now we're seeing that a lot more people are getting tested right before the holidays. So they're thinking about you know, travel, they're thinking about doing all those other things, and more and more people are getting tested, especially as we have rising cases in our community and in the region and in the state and nation as a whole. And so more and more people are getting tested, which does mean that there is a little bit more strain on the labs that process these tests. So now it's looking like test results could be, you know, anywhere between three and seven days, which is really challenging when people need to go back to work or they need to do other things and, and get back to their lives. So it's also really important that if you're waiting for test results, that you are staying home. So it's kind of one of those things where it's the reverse of the criminal justice system where you're assuming you're positive until proven negative. Um, so if you're going to get tested, you know, stay away from others, stay home, um, stay away from gatherings, all those sorts of opportunities where you could spread illness. And then if you do happen to be tested and you get a positive result, one of the things that will happen is you will likely get a call from wherever did the test. So it could be, you know, whether it's your primary care doctor or an urgent care or someone else, you'll, you'll get a call with the results. You'll also get another call from the local health department of where you live. So in Alexandria, you'd get a call from the Alexandria Health Department from one of our case investigators. And the reason that they're calling is for a few things. First, they, they want to check in. They want to make sure that you're doing okay and, you know, how your symptoms are going. 
They also want to make sure that you are equipped to be able to stay home and away from others successfully. And so sometimes that means helping out with coordinating grocery deliveries, or you know, if you have young kids, helping to deliver um, diapers or cleaning supplies or whatever it is you need to successfully be able to stay home and not infect other people. And we will help coordinate that care, coordinate those other sorts of supplies. The other things that we're calling about is to get a sense of where you might have been over the last few weeks. It's not to get you in trouble. It's not to um, blame you for anything. It's really for our additional outreach and education and data collection to see, you know, what else should we be doing in the city to reduce the risk of COVID exposure for people. So it helps us learn more about how the disease is spread. And then finally, the last thing that we do is um, what's known as contact tracing, where we learn more about who you might have been around and to really identify those close contacts that I talked about earlier. So seeing who you might have been around and being able to reach out to them to, again, give them that guidance of, hey, you might have been around someone who was positive and we want you to stay home for this amount of time and to get tested. You were answering my question because I was going to say, <laughs> so what is contact tracing? So those are the kind of the questions that you would be asking that person who tested positive. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Just kind of where have you been and, you know, who have you been around just to get us a better sense of who else we might need to alert. And again, you know, this is, this is confidential. So if I'm, you know, calling someone and letting them know that they are a close contact, I'm not going to say, well, you know, Cheryl was positive, so you're probably going to be sick too. It's, it's more about, hey, you know, we've, we wanted to notify you that, that you might have been in close contact with someone who's positive. So, you know, how are you feeling? Are you doing okay? And then we want to, you know, check in with them regularly to see if their symptoms change, if they develop symptoms, to be able to get them the care that they need. And do you also seek out the person who's been close to the one who tested positive for COVID-19? There seems to be two different categories here, the person who actually tested positive and the person who was close to somebody who tested positive. Would there be a difference in terms of how you would relate to each of these? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you're right. First, we call the person who is positive, and we have a long conversation with them. And then once we get their contacts, the people who they were close to, we give each of those people a call. So it can really vary depending on how active people are. Sometimes, you know, with everyone, a lot of people staying at home, we may only have you know, a, a small handful of people who were close contacts that we need to call and, and let know. But other people who might have been around a lot of folks might have upwards of, you know, 40 or 50 close contacts. And we call all of those people to let them know that they need to stay home and away from others and to monitor themselves for symptoms. So it's those two separate phone calls, the, the person who's positive and then the people who were in close proximity to those who are positive. And they're really vital to containing the spread of COVID because if we can call those close contacts and get them to stay home and get them tested, we prevent them from spreading the illness, maybe unknowingly, to a whole host of other people. 
And emphasize again, Natalie, what questions you don't ask, because I think people are always afraid of invasion of privacy. And tell us what questions you would not be asking these individuals. Sure. So one, um, we will never ask for financial information. So if someone calls you and says that they're, you know, from a healthcare organization or from the health department and they just want to charge you a small fee for contact tracing or they want your bank information to, you know, do this other work or send you another test at home. Um, that is likely a scam. We will never ask you for money. We will never ask you for bank or financial information. We will also never ask for things like social security number or anything like that. Um, again, really, we're just trying to get a sense of, of how you're doing, how you're feeling, who you've been around, um, but that will never include asking for money or you know your, your really sensitive information like Social Security or your immigration status or anything like that. And then in kind of a long term, one other quick question I wanted to ask is, do, do you continue to check in frequently with both the persons who have tested positive for COVID-19 as well as those who have been in contact? Kind of what is the timeline? How long can somebody expect that they'll be hearing from a public health official? Yeah, so we, we do like to stay in contact um, just for a period of time while people, you know, either might be infectious or in that window where they might develop symptoms. So it can really vary based on whether you are the person who is positive yourself or you are a close contact. So for the folks who are close contacts, we actually have a really um, nifty automated system that we ask people to enroll in and basically based on people's preference, it either sends them a daily text message or a daily email or an automated phone call where it just asks about your symptoms and, and how you're feeling. And you just press a quick button and that's it. And that'll go on for, um, if you are close contact, it'll go on for the 14 days from when you are exposed to the person who was positive, because that is that incubation period that I mentioned of where you might possibly develop symptoms or become positive yourself. And really, we're just monitoring that to see, oh, well, you know, it looks like they did develop symptoms. So we're going to give you more information about where you can go get tested. And then for the people who are positive themselves, again, we're, we're just providing guidance about, you know, when is it safe for you to leave your house again after that time period has passed when you're no longer infectious. So just providing that guidance on that front. And then, then that's it. After those periods of time have passed, we will, we will not be following up or, or checking in on people. Um, you know, of course, we're always available if people have questions and want to follow up with us. And I should mention, actually, if people have any questions about any of the things that I've talked about or, you know, they've been a close contact and they want to follow up or they have those sorts of questions, the Alexandria Health Department has a COVID hotline that is staffed on weekdays from 9 a.m. until 6 p.m. We also accommodate people who speak different languages. You know, no question is too small or silly for us. Um, and that phone number is 
1-800-273-4988. And so I really encourage people to call if they have any other questions about any of the things that I've talked about today. And one does not have to be living in Alexandria to use that uh, number? That's right. We will we will answer questions from any jurisdiction, although, you know, if it is specifically about kind of the local resources that are available for people, we'll probably um, connect you to whatever health department is where you live. So if you live in Arlington, we'll probably give you the, the phone number to their hotline and be able to connect you to those local resources. But if you have just kind of general COVID questions, then then absolutely people can call our hotline. For the remainder of the program, I wanted to turn to Thanksgiving. Um, I know you, your department put out an excellent uh, press release about Thanksgiving observances this year. So why are public health officials urging different Thanksgiving observances this year? And what do families need to know and do this year? Yeah, so Thanksgiving is going to look pretty different this year um, compared to previous years. And so are the rest of the holidays this season, all the December holidays, they're going to look different. And, you know, I, I think that there's not really a good way to to avoid that. And so we put out some guidance based on the CDC's recommendations about what are lower risk, moderate risk, and higher risk activities. Um, at the end of the day, though, the most important thing and the most thing that we're most concerned about is travel. So we know that Thanksgiving is a really popular travel holiday with people going to visit relatives and others that they haven't seen. Um, and we really encourage people to try to avoid travel as much as possible. Um, you know, there was something that I saw that I, I really liked the sentiment of it that basically said, you know, we're going to celebrate separately today or this season. So that way next year when we're able to gather again, there'll be no one missing from the table. Um, and we really just want to emphasize that, if, again, if you can avoid travel, please do, um, especially because oftentimes when we're traveling for Thanksgiving, we're visiting, you know, either older relatives or others that might be at higher risk for severe illness. And even though here, you know, in Northern Virginia, we're at about a moderate level of community transmission, so a moderate level of COVID spread, there are other places in the country that have much higher rates of COVID spread than we do. And if you are traveling to those locations for your holiday plans and then come back to Northern Virginia, there's a chance that you might be bringing COVID back with you. So that's why we encourage, you know, trying to reduce that travel. Other lower risk activities though, are really doing things like having a small dinner with people who are already in your household, having virtual dinners. I feel like we've all become pros at the, the virtual meeting and the virtual events. Um, and, you know, we know that also Black Friday is a big time for, for shopping in stores and crowded places, which is very concerning this year. So, you know, there are lots and lots of ways to be able to shop online, do curbside pickup and delivery, even for many of our wonderful small local businesses that are here that have all, many of them have really adapted to be able to offer these safer models of, again, you know, contactless delivery, curbside pickup, other ways. So you can still support, you know, our wonderful local businesses and others and do that shopping, but in a safer way. 
Um, and that's in comparison to obviously the higher risk activities, which are, you know, going to a crowded sports event, attending crowded events, um, or having large indoor gatherings from people um, who are outside of your household normally. And if you're looking for things that are more kind of moderate risk activities, those are things like having smaller outdoor dinner gatherings for people who are local. Um, you know, you could visit pumpkin patches or orchards, um, do things like that. Um, those are all kind of more moderate risk activities, which we know, you know, people are gonna modify what they traditionally do. You can still celebrate, but just, you know, with these lower risk choices. And in terms of Thanksgiving also, is it advisable, if possible, we would like to think that Thanksgiving will be a nice day, that if possible, eat outside uh, rather than inside, or if you are inside, kind of sit on opposite ends of the table. I mean, I'm trying to think creative in separate rooms. Um, is it still more dangerous to eat inside? Um, perhaps it depends on the number of uh, people that are in the room, but... Any special thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think we all have to be very creative at this point. So absolutely. You know, if you are getting together with people who don't normally live in your household, definitely outside is always better than inside. Um, if you are eating inside, um, definitely seeing what else you can do to improve the ventilation in your space. So whether that's opening multiple windows, um, having that cross current of air, turning on, you know, making sure that your HVAC system is up to date and being able to have that help out as well. And then spacing people out. So again, like you mentioned, kind of putting people on opposite sides of the table. Um, it can be hard to figure out what is six feet apart within your house and being able to space people out in that way. But because people are taking off their masks to be able to eat, that distance is even more important than if you were just hanging out with your masks on. So absolutely, if you can space people out really far, that is, that is the best practice and be outside and do all those sorts of things. But again, there's also you know alternatives such as if there is a traditional family recipe that you make every year and you know, you have folks that live in the area, maybe you can have a contactless delivery to drop off, you know, some food on their front porch so that you can still be kind of sharing a meal, but separately and safely. Um, so there are definitely opportunities for people to be creative about celebrating because again, you know, it's, it's going to be different. This year is going to be different and next year might be a little bit different too, but we're doing this because, you know, this helps keep us safe and being able to celebrate together in the future and making sure that we, we don't lose anyone along the way. Good point. So very quickly, one last time about the best resources. You want to give us that hotline or and website? Yes, absolutely. So our Alexandria Health Department hotline is 703-746-4900. Four nine eight eight, and again, it's staffed on weekdays from nine a.m. to six p.m. And if you call on the weekends or after hours, you can just leave a voicemail, and someone will call you back on the next business day. And then our website, with tons of really great information and resources, is alexandriava.gov 
slash coronavirus. And there's where you can get tested, more guidance about how to stay safe, when it's safe to be around others, if you've been positive, um, all sorts of really great information that, that people can spend some time with. All right. I want to thank Natalie Tallis with the Alexandria, Virginia Health Department for joining me today. And I want to make a quick announcement about the fact that there's a new Aging Matters website. Now, the address is www.agingmattersonline.com. You can access all the Aging Matters content in one place and also learn more about the Aging Matter podcasts on Apple and Spotify and Simplecast. So, by all means, visit the website today and subscribe to the Aging Matters monthly newsletter where you will then be able to receive email updates whenever new radio shows and TV episodes are available. So I want to thank Robert Winship for handling the technical aspects of today's program. And as always, thank you for listening to Aging Matters. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. Have a happy Thanksgiving and I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Thank you.